Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley, and with me is the professor, Dr. Alan Jameson. Hi. Things are a bit different, mate. They are. I can see you. It's different for three reasons. <laughs> Go on. First of all, this is the first podcast we've done when we're in the same room, which is weird. It is weird. <laughs> Second reason is we're in a sound stage. Why is it called a sound stage? It's just a room full of foam. Anyway, don't be ungrateful, but... <laughs> that was to you, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, it's very quiet. So for the benefit of the listeners, let's, let's give them five seconds of how silent this is. I can still hear a hum. I know. I'm not convinced by this whole sound thing. See, we've got, we've got excellent technology, but we also don't fully understand how to use it because we've been, for COVID reasons, we've been left to our own devices with really nice equipment. We're not normally allowed <laughs> nice things, but, but anyway, so it, it might be the first one we've ever done in person, but it might be our last one. So I'm moving to Australia. So if I end up getting stung by a wombat while surfing away from a bushfire. So multiple Hadel subdives, but you're, you're more concerned about Australian wildlife. Stinging wombats in the water, that's what Everything is poisonous. Everything is bigger and ev everything is poisonous. The cats are poisonous over there. Yeah, so I heard, yeah. Pigeons as well. Pigeons are deadly. Everything's just venomous. Yeah. Spores <laughs> of the Spores. pigeon wings as a flyby. <laughs> they dust you. I think, I think that's your lad's Pokemon that's getting into your head there. Oh, maybe. That's, that's clearly Butterfree's sleeping spore attack. All right. Should we dive into some news? My news is not that unrelated to what you just said about Pokemon. Okay, go for it. So I was having a look the other day about stuff that's going on just now, and there's a scientist <laughs> who found a undersea volcano near Christmas Island, Indian Ocean, and the whole news article was about how much it looks like the Eye of Sauron from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and then if you scroll down, there's another one from somewhere in the North Atlantic, from the Retriever Ridge or something like that, who have found SpongeBob and Patrick. So I can only conclude that in the last year and a half of intense TV watching that scientists have finally gone mad and they're just <laughs> seeing what they've been watching for the last year and just giving up trying to describe species and just going, yeah, it looks like Spongebob. There's sort of criticism that like it undermines it a little bit, but if you've got to name it something, like there's no I'm all for it. it. I'm all yeah, for it. I think that makes of... far more sense because you remember Spongebob, right? I mean, even, even having read the article yesterday, I can't remember what it actually was. You can't remember Latin. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it works. I don't care what stuff's called as long as you remember and you know what you're talking about. Yeah, as long as it's useful. I just like how TV's just completely and utterly infiltrated our minds now. Anyway, what news have you got? Uh, there was a couple of interesting ones. An interesting study trying to figure out the deep ocean cooling, basically, and the deep ocean thermals over the last few centuries. Ocean is the biggest sink of our excess heat, so it's actually protecting us from global warming. Uh, so 90% of the excess heat at the moment is being absorbed by the ocean. Not a great deal is done by the deep sea, but because of its huge volume, that actually counts up to a lot. Unfortunately, we don't have a great deal of data on the temperatures of the deep sea. So over the last 15 years, there's been something called the Argo program, uh, which is what gives us a lot of our ocean temperature data. It's an incredible program. So basically, it's these, these drifting floats, and they've got little buoyancy engines inside them. So these floats are just cast off into the sea, and they rise and sink at a constant cycle, measuring really accurate temperature data as they sink and float. I'm sure it's in the thousands, isn't it now released, Alan? They're, they're just drifting with the yeah. ocean currents. Oh, it's thousands and thousands of them now, yeah. It's been a massive, massive program, but they tend to stop at about 2,000 meters. So we've got really good resolution data, but only of the, the first 2,000 meters. So this study looked at using machine learning to try and figure out what was going on with the deep sea thermals during that time and also extending back sort of a decade or so. 
I think you should stop talking about climate change. It's really depressing. Yesterday, all the news was about climate change, and I've just read a headline that said that enough ice melted in Greenland on Tuesday to cover Florida with two inches of water. So it did show that some regions of the deep sea were actually cooling until about 2000 because there's such a massive time lag to the deep sea. And that's what's given us a little bit of a buffer now and absorbed a lot of excess heat. But unfortunately, because of the large volume of the deep sea and the time lag that the deep sea operates at, the oxygen that's reaching the deep sea can be hundreds of years old. It means even if we get our act together now, the sort of course correction reaching the deep sea might be hundreds of years away. So the deep sea will continue to warm even if we manage to sort ourselves out on land. Wait a minute, before you go any further, Tom, I've got a question for you. Sure. How much excess heat have you ever absorbed? I haven't measured before you it. start. Before you start pointing the finger at climate, how much of excess heat have you absorbed? What, what's your role in all this? Yeah, what am I doing? What yeah. am I doing to help? What are you doing yeah. to save the planet? How much heat have you absorbed? Exactly. <laughs> Putting it all on the ocean. Sorry, I'm trying not to get depressed by all the words coming out of your mouth. I, I know. Carry on. It gets a little bit grim. Uh, so there was another study that looked at uh, a long-term paleontological study. So looking at the sort of tens of thousands and thousands of year scale and looking at something that's come up quite a lot in our ecological work, which is what is driving the deep sea communities? Why, why are we finding one community in one place and a different community in another? And what kept coming up in our research was temperature, despite the temperature variation being incredibly, incredibly small. So obviously you think the amount of surface productivity, the amount of food falling down from above is going to impact the deep sea community. But this really long-term study, temperature really emerged as a big driver in the deep sea diversity. And just trying to think of, about sort of what's causing that. Yeah, in one of our large fish studies, we found temperature kept coming out as a, a strong indicator. But you never really know if it's just correlated with temperature because temperature also follows with water masses. So am I really measuring temperature or is this about different water masses having different characteristics and the animals are different? It's all very mixed up. It's all very intertwined. Yeah, you it's can't measure one thermal effect in it. So if you're warm, you can go deeper. If you're cold, you go shallower. So you tend to get deeper species in Antarctica living shallower. And the snailfish one's an easy one for that because there are warm trenches like Marianne and Japan and Philippines have fish right down sort of 8,000-ish. And they're kind of, when we say warm, it's still only about 0.3 degree warmer. Yeah, it's, it's fractional. But you go to Antarctica, you get the same lot, but they're about 1,000 meters shallower. So I think 2 degrees Celsius is equivalent of about 1,000 meters in terms of stress on the cell. Something like that. Don't quote me on that. So it's hard to say whether it's definitely temperatures doing it because it's it's all yeah. it's all kind of it's, it's trying to disentangle the two, right? You can look at it as a as a depth adaptation and sort of translating pressure into temperature, but there's also the the energetics of it because things like the grenadiers, things like the the abyssal scavengers have such tight energy budgets, and because their metabolism is directly impacted by their environmental temperature, only a a few tenths of a degree change is going to affect their energy budget. And so maybe they're living at such a knife edge that that is enough to cause a shift. Personally, I think that might be why you tend to not get those guys in the tropics. You, t you tend to get your, yeah. your scavenging grenadiers on the subtropical areas right up to polar. And then when you're in the, the tropical warmer areas, that's when you get your like Cuskiel-based communities and you see the scavengers disappear, which we've, we've been caught out by that a couple of times. We've been sort of a bit blasé with like, hey, we know what we're going to find here. And then we find a totally Cuskiel-based community. Find nothing. Find nothing. <laughs> we always find something, but it still has the ability to surprise us. Even after so my question time. for you, Tom, is how tight is your energy budget? Pretty tight. Is it? Yeah, pretty tight. I like to keep a tight energy budget. 
All right, I'm quite loose with mine, to be honest. Yeah. Sometimes I just don't have any at all, and other times I'm unstoppable. I'm practically <laughs> ferocious. Chips, cheese, and gravy on the walk home. Yeah. yeah. Ferocious energy. That's exactly. Budget. We'll do that tonight. We will. We will. We are taking the opportunity of being in the same room to actually. We could have squandered an afternoon in the pub. Yeah. Yeah. We do some of our best thinking in the pub. We've yeah. had some good ideas. Yeah. I can't remember any of them, but we're pretty sure they're really good ideas. Yeah. We've had some stupid ones as well. But... Yeah. Just take a pen. I'll take the recorder and we'll record the outro for the podcast later tonight. Oh, right. Okay. That'll be interesting. Yeah, potentially risky. But yeah, okay. Okay. The end of this podcast will be. Uh... It'll be a bit. All you'll hear is the sound of the rain hitting the roofs or the pavements of Newcastle, to, and <laughs> on, just slightly draining out the sound of Tom sobbing. You'll miss this when you're in beautiful sunny Oz. The no, rain is poisonous. will be attacked by wombats or something. <laughs> so the other thing in the news, Tom, obviously, is something we should mention, but I don't really want to discuss it because I don't want to talk about anything depressing. It's this whole deep sea mining business in the island of Nauru has pulled the trigger on the two-year deal whereby in two years time apparently or at least theoretically they're going to go ahead and start mining regardless of what's in place at the time. This was a weird loophole in the original the law of the sea it's not that oh, one, something like that yeah. yeah the law it's called the law the, the law, law says sea law yeah uh, yeah so that uh, it looks like mining's going to go ahead or at least they're talking about it happening and lots of people are very angry you know everyone's talking about it so if you want to know more about it I suggest googling it because I don't want to talk about deep sea mining anymore. I'm sick of it. <laughs> and we don't talk about it that much. No, we don't, actually. We're probably one of the few people who in this business who don't. A good shout-out, then, the Dosi newsletter, which anyone can sign up for. And they provide a lot of information on the deep sea mining, current stuff that's going on. And they're just really good at scouring for deep sea news. So I'll put a link into that. It's well worth signing up for if you want to be current with what's going on. Right, so if Greenland is melting and it's going to flood Florida and wombats and pigeons are going to come and get us and the deep sea is going to start to boil. Is it time we went into space? What if there's deep sea in space? And what if our natural enemies as deep sea scientists, which is space scientists, what if they get to that deep sea before us? Well, that's fine. If they want to go deep sea, that's fine. But they have to leave the keys to the space shuttle so we can go and play in space. <laughs> so we, Yeah, we'll do a trade. We'll do a trade. As long as we can come yeah, play in have space. Have a jo- celebrity job swap. That would work. Yeah, let's, let's pop into space. If we're going to do a celebrity job swap with space scientists, we need something to do when we're in space. So if we're deep sea biologists, we then become astrobiologists. We need to know someone who knows about space animals. Deep sea space animals. Deep though. sea space let's animals. Let's not drift off topic. Aye, deep sea space animals. Phone them. Yeah. I am incredibly lucky to be joined by Dr. Kevin Hand, astrobiologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, director of the Ocean Worlds Lab, and involved in a massive range of missions to uh, to search for life outside our planet. Could you run me through those? I, I was almost <laughs> overwhelmed once I started doing some research. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom, and thanks for uh, having me uh, here today. A lot of fun to chat with you. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, um, sort of the the publisher parish side of my uh, life is uh, doing research in our lab at JPL called the Ocean Worlds Lab. But then when it comes to missions, I'm the pre-project scientist for the Europa Lander mission concept. That's not an approved mission yet. Hopefully someday it will be. And that involves putting a spacecraft on the surface of Jupiter's moon Europa to search for signs of life in the ice, which then covers a uh, subsurface ocean. And then I'm also a co-I on the Europa Clipper mission and the Titan Dragonfly uh, mission and a staff scientist and campaign science lead for the Mars 2020 mission, the, the Perseverance rover. An incredibly busy person that I'm I'm really grateful that you spared a little bit of time to, to have a chat with us on the Deep Sea Podcast, which it turns out we're not so different, you and I. Uh, <laughs> So I'm really excited to hear about these sort of potentials for for alien life. Can you 
Can you quickly rattle off what you think are our best candidates that we currently know about? The sort of rule of thumb, the, the, the mantra of NASA's search for life beyond Earth has long been find the water. Uh, if we've learned anything from life on Earth, of course, it's that where we find liquid water on Earth, we generally find life. And so when we look out into our solar system, we can ask the question, what worlds in our solar system or beyond have presently or have had in the past liquid water? And to that end, um, Mars has long been the, um, the premier world and focus of much of our robotic exploration. And for good reason. You look at the surface of Mars and you see this history of flowing uh, liquid water of, of lakes and potentially even oceans. But that's liquid water that may have existed billions of years ago. The Perseverance rover is right now uh, rolling around in Jezero Crater looking at ancient delta deposits for signs of life that may have existed in that ancient lake. But when it comes to the search for life beyond Earth, as much as I love Mars, um, one of the challenges there is that we're not going to find any big biomolecules. We're not going to find any DNA or, or other large information storing molecules from billion year old rocks. Those molecules, they, they just don't last long in the rock record, even here on Earth. And so part of what fascinates me about the search for life elsewhere is potentially finding life that we can study and understand and determine whether or not its biochemistry is completely different from ours, whether or not it runs on DNA, RNA, proteins, or whether or not there's some other game in town. And for that, these ice-covered ocean worlds of the outer solar system, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many of my, my colleagues, are the premier places to go. Uh, these are worlds like Jupiter's moon Europa, Saturn's moon Enceladus, and Saturn's moon Titan. These are worlds that are covered in ice, but beneath their icy shells exist today vast global liquid water oceans. So if there's a lot of liquid water there today, might there be life alive there today? Uh, who knows? But when it comes to exploration, these are the places that I'd like to go. Historically, when we, we were sort of thinking about the, the old Goldilocks zone and the, the looking for planets that looked like Earth, it wasn't even what Earth looks like. It was this <laughs> very human-centric version of Earth. And, and one of my little things I preach is most of this planet is covered in water, and most of that water is very, very deep. This is mm. not just a blue planet, this is a deep sea planet. Um, and that we'd we get fascinated by like, oh, let's look for rivers and lakes. And it's like, no, if we're using even ourselves as an example, you should look for deep sea. <laughs> Right, exactly. And the and, and these moons of the outer solar system are really changing the paradigm for habitability. As you mentioned, in the early days of astronomy and planetary science, there was this conception of sort of a Goldilocks zone. Venus is too hot, Mars is too cold, Earth is just right, so as to maintain a liquid water ocean on the surface in contact with a nice thick atmosphere, and energy from the sun helps maintain that. But with Europa and Enceladus and a few of the other moons, the energy for maintaining and sustaining liquid water oceans comes not from their parent star, not from our sun, but rather from the tidal tug and pull that these moons experience as they orbit giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn. And so there's a tremendous amount of mechanical energy going into uh, Europa, and that mechanical energy from the tidal squeezing and tugging turns into heat, and that heat helps maintain the liquid water ocean beneath the icy shell. And the ice serves as an insulating blanket. You know, one of the things that I love to um, uh, highlight is that if it weren't for the fact that when water freezes, it becomes less dense and thus floats, 
if it weren't for that beautiful little quirk of the universe, then these subsurface liquid water ocean worlds would not exist because that those icy shells really are a thermal blanket protecting the oceans from the, the coldness of space and retaining the heat that is created from tidal energy. I find it incredible that it's it's such a different mechanism because when I what first was sort of learning about this theories, I thought, okay, it's, it's going to be an active core. It's going to be hot in the middle, you know, in the same way that our, our planet is. But the forces are so extreme. It's being needed like dough. And it's friction. It's friction that's sort of providing the, the base energy for these systems. And that's, I found that incredible. And of course, that's going to have impacts on, on what life might be possible there. Cause you, you know, even with our own theories on Earth, it's, it's rhythm, it's change, it's looking for the chance encounters of complex molecules. And a static system isn't going to do that. Even with mm -hmm. energy input, it needs change for things to coalesce and then break up and then coalesce again. Exactly. You know, biology, life needs disequilibrium, be that chemical disequilibrium, say at hydrothermal vents or some photons coming from a from a star. So life needs that disequilibrium to to sustain itself, to harness the the energy needed to drive metabolism. And one of the things that, you know, connecting it to deep seas, deep oceans, that tidal energy may well sustain not just the liquid water oceans, but it could also be driving seafloor activity and powering hydrothermal activity at the base of at least Europa's ocean and Enceladus's ocean. Both of those worlds, we think, do have rocky seafloors made of silicate rocks, similar to what we find here on Earth. If I was to sort of teleport myself, beyond being immediately dead, if I was to teleport myself to where you think is the, is the best environment to foster new life outside of our planet, what are the conditions like? If we're just talking about habitability, could, can an organism survive under these conditions. Then for Europa, it's basically uh, the following. The, the temperature and pressure that we predict exists at the base of Europa's roughly 100 kilometer deep ocean, 60 miles, that temperature and pressure is probably not that much different than the temperature and pressure experienced in the Challenger Deep at 11 kilometers depth in our own ocean. And so, uh, you know, I know you've done work there. I've done uh, some work in the in the Mariana Trench. And just by a fun little size comparison, it turns out that on Earth, this big planet, the, the pressure at 11 kilometers deep is very similar to the pressure at 100 kilometers depth within Europa, where the gravity, because of Europa's lower mass, is one-seventh that of the Earth. And so uh, the pressures are quite comparable. And so in terms of physical conditions, uh, obviously, we don't fully know the chemistry of Europa's ocean, but we think it's liquid water with some salts in it and maybe some sulfur and, and, and other things. You know, I, I think if you took a little Mariana Trench amphipod and put it into Europa's ocean um, at, say, 50 kilometers down, maybe 100 kilometers down, it might well do fine. Now, <laughs> who knows if, uh, if there would be sufficient food for it to, to survive, but it would at least... Uh, um, it would survive long enough to get hungry, which is exactly. fascinating. <laughs> which also, uh, you know, coming to the robotic side, if you could magically transport the uh, Deep Sea Challenger, the human vessel that James Cameron took down to the Challenger Deep in 2012, and, and I was a team member on that expedition, if you could miraculously get that vehicle out to Europa, it would do fine in Europa's ocean. Now, I got to put a little 
asterisks there because we don't fully know the ocean currents and a few other things. But from a, a temperature and pressure standpoint, the deep sea challenger would have done fine. And the temperature of Europa's ocean water is probably hovering in that range of minus four to zero uh, C. Uh, maybe it's a little hotter down around some hydrothermal vents, et cetera. The harsh environment is the surface of Europa. The, the challenging uh, aspect is getting through the ice shell, which is perhaps on average, say 10 kilometers in thickness. There's a big debate about that. Uh, I, uh, there's probably very thin regions and, and regions that are quite a bit thicker. But once you got to the ocean, some of our Earth technologies might do quite well. We've got this incredible test bed right here where we live. <laughs> right. And, and that's part of the beauty of the, the win-win of developing an ocean worlds uh, program where we can really have the vision of someday exploring the seafloor of, of Europa's ocean and Enceladus's ocean while simultaneously as we kind of develop those tools and technology, uh, advancing our capability for exploring Earth's ocean. I kind of like to think of that evolution of humans from the Australopithecus to uh, Homo sapiens and, and uh, a lot of the vehicles that would someday go out to Europa, will go through that evolutionary um, cycling in our own cryosphere and in our, in our own ocean. With the beautiful knock-on effects that my community is going to have access to some incredible new tools. Exactly. It's, yeah, we're up for that. <laughs> and, and, and the comparison between sea and space is really interesting. The, um, in the, the space community, we've long had to design and build with the, what we call the tyranny of the rocket equation. And this uh, challenge is basically that if you want to send a lander to the surface of Europa, you not only need a rocket large enough to get the mass of that lander to the surface, you need to have rocket fuel for the rocket fuel, uh, because part of what you're launching off of the Earth is rocket fuel. And so uh, there's this cascading effect that the rocket equation forces you to abide by. And meanwhile, in the deep ocean world, there hasn't really, in my opinion, been an analogous forcing function. And that's a bit of a historical anomaly in that a lot of the deep ocean vehicles were derived from, from navies. And so in the deep sea community, we kind of got used to big ships with massive submersibles, massive tools. And fast forward to the modern day, we're still kind of stuck in that way of operating. Meanwhile, in space, we've migrated to CubeSats and all sorts of tiny but robust vehicles. You know, on Mars, we can't go kick a rover uh, to get it to, to restart. We have to make them very... <laughs> Uh, robust and there's a lot of validation verification. And so in the bridge between the sea and space, part of what our team at JPL and a number of our colleagues at Woods Hole, et cetera, part of what we're trying to do and part of what we're trying to ignite is let's take some of that, that space know-how and get it into the ocean. Let's build some CubeSats for the sea. Let's make robust vehicles that can be deployed off of much smaller ships. Let's make robust vehicles that don't cost a, a tremendous amount of money. Mm. Uh, so there's a, there's a tremendous win-win of uh, sea and space working together. We've been ranting about this for some time, and, and my own tech has tried to sort of follow that philosophy. Because we're biologists, really, we try to explain it ecologically and say that, you know, we've been K-strategists, and we want to be our strategists. Mm -hmm. I want to I wanna cast <laughs> millions of my offspring into the sea and uh, see how they get on. But I, I think our biggest issue is just brute forcing and mm -hmm. taking a little bit of atmospheric air down 
with us, which is which is not needed. I I, I really try and like harmonize with the pressure if I can, and uh, I see that sort of philosophy carrying through into the into the space exploration as well. So there's there's really cool tech stuff as well as this potentially very very exciting sort of biology aspect to it as well. And it's such a win win. We need to explore our ocean. Uh, our ocean uh, is so critical to future of our planet, be it um, as a resource, as a thing we need to conserve, climate change, obviously, all of these factors come together when we talk about the exploration of our ocean. Uh, and so we can simultaneously work on those issues while also building a bridge towards exploring beyond Earth. I jumped ahead a little bit there and I, I got a excited about what might be living there now, but what processes could have potentially led to life there? Because our, our current understanding, at least on Earth is that we had a sort of single point origin of life that then sort of radiated out, which is, I can get quite, well, turn into quite a hippie about it, actually, because one of the things I love to hold on to and turns me into into such a, an eco-warrior is that every living thing on Earth could be viewed as a member of our family. You mm -hmm. just go back far mm -hmm. enough. And cool. I feel so connected to everything when I think of it that way. You know, I, I've got a distant relative who's a leopard and I'm incredibly proud of them for being so fast. <laughs> uh, it just, it weirdly makes me feel connected without totally abandoning biological science. <laughs> um, so it, it's, it's so exciting to see that dice roll again. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what might be out there? So this is where the, the exploration of these ocean worlds uh, really taps into uh, something truly, truly profound. Not only the profound nature of that question, are we alone? Is there life beyond Earth? But when it comes to the origin of life itself, not only would the discovery of, say, life within Europa's ocean be an indicator of um, life beyond Earth, it would also teach us about the origin of our own tree of life, how we came to be here on planet Earth. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, as you mentioned, on Earth, uh, there may have been just one instantiation of uh, the origin of life um, three and a half to four billion years ago or so. I happen to think that perhaps there were multiple origins and then a bit of a competition and the tree of life that we now know and love that connects us all through our, our genetic material. And that's the, the tree that survived. When it comes, let's, let's go back to Mars. So again, I love Mars, but Earth and Mars are very close neighbors. And so if we found life on Mars, and again, we're probably not going to be able to tease out any large molecules, so, so that's a challenge in and of itself. But if we found evidence, um, say fossilized microbes or, or other evidence of life on Mars, we would be at a bit of a challenge to figure out whether or not life on Earth was related to that life on Mars or not. Uh, do these two planets represent two independent trees of life, two independent origins of life. And the reason for that is because Mars and Earth have been transferring rocks back and forth for billions of years. And so it's feasible that ejecta from the Earth, from an asteroid impact or something, could have delivered microbes to Mars during the time when Mars was habitable, or uh, maybe life originated on Mars and rocks ejected from Mars landed on Earth and seeded Earth. So uh, that's a bit of a a limiting factor in our understanding for how easy or hard the origin of life is on a planet. If we find it on Mars, we might not necessarily be able to say that it was a separate independent origin and that the that life itself has originated twice. You still with me? Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I love all this. This is great. <laughs> so, so now let's go uh, to the outer solar system, to, to Jupiter, and think about Europa. Europa is much harder to, say, seed with rocks from Earth or, for matter, that matter, Mars. Europa is at 5.2 astronomical units. That's 5.2 times the Earth-Sun distance. And so even though 
snow, occasionally rocks from Earth do get out there. It, the, the statistics are just a lot harder than, uh, than getting a rock to Mars. Uh, and then on top of that, there's all sorts of other conditions having to do with the radiation environment and Europa's ice shell that would essentially make it hard for uh, a rock from Earth or Mars to seed life on Europa. And so what that means is that if we go to Europa and we find life, that for me at least, and this is true for Enceladus and Titan and other ocean worlds, if we found life within any of these ocean worlds of the outer solar system, that to me would be a very strong indication of a second origin of life, a completely independent tree of life. And that would indicate to me that the origin of life arises wherever the conditions are right, and we then may well live in a biological universe, one where the origin of life is not a real bottleneck, but uh, uh, one that, that chemistry can evolve through uh, where the conditions are right. That would, that would change everything. And, I... and, and, and think about it also, if we did find DNA-based life on Europa, that would uh, be a beautiful test of contingency versus convergence. That would mean to me that, that DNA is sort of the biochemical winner of how to make biology work in our universe. Um, you know, the, the, it would be a little bit challenging because some people would probably say, well, uh, no, since we found DNA based life on Europa, that somehow it must have gotten seeded. But I would uh, potentially fall on the other side of that and say, well, I think this is convergent evolution at the mm-hmm. origin of life scale. Is there any contingency or sort of worry about the lander itself sometime in the future being the seed? and carrying material absolutely yeah the um within nasa there is a an office of planetary protection that is amazing <laughs> and so any mission that's going to a potentially uh, habitable world has to get a um a planetary protection classification and in the case of the mars rover perseverance which which has got these tubes that are uh, being used to store the, the, the rock cores that are being collected. Those tubes and the whole system of that rover had to be cleaned to an extraordinary degree to make sure that there were no little microbial hitchhikers and also to make sure that there were not, say, organic contaminants, uh, not necessarily life itself, but molecules um, that are on those tubes that would pose a scientific risk to us at some point in the future when we get those samples back on Earth. And we don't want to find some sort of carbon compound in the rock samples that we've spent so much time and energy and money returning from Mars, only to discover that it was a, a molecule that was used as some sort of solvent in a lab at, uh, at NASA. That's incredible. I, I'm fascinated that the sort of scientific rigor almost seems secondary to the preservation of, of a sort of pristine universe. I, I really like that this has almost a conservation feel to it in that, um, no, we, we just want to observe. We don't want to, to impact these places. Right. Well, as, as Carl Sagan said decades ago, Mars should be for the Martians. And uh, as a uh, corollary to that, Europa should be for the Europans and Enceladus <laughs> should be for the Enceladians and so on and so forth. Uh, just to kind of close the loop on the origin of life, another aspect of that that's beautiful is that we can do this hypothesis testing. When it comes to the origin of life on Earth, there are kind of two camps. Uh, one camp that says that uh, life on Earth originated in a tide pool on the shores of an ancient ocean. And it was that process of desiccation from the sun and occasional rewetting from incoming uh, waves and tides that eventually gave rise to to life on Earth. The other kind of camp says, no, uh, we think that 
life on Earth originated in deep sea hydrothermal vents. And the chemistry of hydrothermal vents is conducive to um, some of the evolution that we think was at the, the foundation of the origin of life itself. So there, there are really strong and good and interesting arguments for both of those uh, ideas, uh, pros and cons for both. And what I love about the exploration of Mars and also the exploration of Europa and Enceladus and, and all these worlds together is that the ocean worlds of the outer solar system would largely be a test of the hydrothermal vent origin of life uh, hypothesis. Because it, there's there's no atmosphere on Europa, there's no continents, there's no tide pools uh, lapping onto shores. Uh, Europa's an airless world. Uh, it's just ice and space. And once you get through that many kilometers of ice, you're in the ocean. And really, you've got two modalities for the origin of life. The hydrothermal vents and a much lesser considered uh, origin of life um, area that I like to explore, which is the possibility of life forming in ice sheets. But tide pools is kind of off limits for these ice-covered ocean worlds. Meanwhile, for Mars, Mars, uh, if life did originate there and it wasn't seeded, uh, life on Mars would have been kind of a, a tide pool kind of uh, scenario, most likely. Would the life be anoxic? Because our, our hydrothermal vent communities are, are, by and large, I think, still fairly oxic. So there's still a connection to to photosynthesis. <laughs> yeah, Tom, this is a, a, you couldn't have asked a, a question that's perhaps more near and dear to, uh, to my heart. And actually, much of my, my research on, on Europa, which is you know, how far along could life get and, and what are the metabolisms that could take place? As you mentioned, of course, on Earth, oxygen arose because of photosynthesis. On Europa, the ice is going to prevent photosynthesis, but perhaps unique amongst the various ocean worlds, Europa's ice has hydrogen peroxide and oxygen in the ice. And that hydrogen peroxide and oxygen are made by merit of the radiation environment of Jupiter's magnetic field. And so um, this is a big challenge for robotic spacecraft. You've got to survive the harsh radiation environment, but it may actually be a big benefit for the geo. It may be the reason it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so we know that this, we, we, with our telescopes, our, our ground-based telescopes and our spacecraft, we can see these, these oxidants like oxygen and peroxide. And peroxide, of course, decays to oxygen once it gets into warmer water and warmer conditions. And so I've actually done the math on this, that, that uh, depending on how efficiently the surface ice of Europa is cycled into the ocean below, you could well reach molar concentrations of oxygen in Europa's ocean that exceed the O2 minima zones here on Earth. And as you know well, uh, polychaete worms and, and other, not just microbial life, but multicellular life um, survive. And so I, yeah, I actually wrote about this in a, in a chapter in my book. I call, uh, there's a chapter called the, the Octopus and the Hammer and kind of how far evolution could get in an oxygen-rich, ice-covered ocean world. I'm loving that the moon sort of solved the problem. <laughs> I just, it's, it's so like spookily elegant. Yeah, this is all leading towards the like, oh, if there's something there, it's, it's going to be totally different. It's going to be like a totally unique lineage. Absolutely. And then think about, you know, and here again, we're just, we're deep in the realm of speculation. Um, but what yeah, I think we're on decks, chairs, and there's a sunset. <laughs> and we're, we're just sort of musing at the end of the day now. But that's, that's the fun bit. <laughs> exactly. And so um, one of the thoughts that I that I love to think about with respect to say, uh, uh, an intelligent being that might have evolved in an ice covered ocean, be it within our own solar system or, or, or elsewhere, you know, how their philosophy, how their religion, how their, their cognitive evolution would proceed, given that 
they cannot see the night sky. Their sky would be this creaking ice shell around which their mythology and, and some of their technology, et cetera, would be based. Now, they would not have that same experience that we had as, as early humans, where coming out of Africa, we were guided by the stars. And, and you know whether it's agriculture or exploration or coming back to exploring the ocean, our connection to the night sky helped not just motivate it, but through navigation also help make it possible. For an intelligent creature living in an ice-covered ocean, how would their curiosity be uh, be motivated? What kind of mythology, et cetera, would they, would they develop? Yeah, they've got such a defined world. Uh, unless you have a, an opportunity to swim your way up a little crack and uh, eject yourself out of a, an erupting plume, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a faint glimpse of the, of the stars <laughs> as you are rapidly yeah. uh, dehydrated and frozen to death. Yeah, you're not going to come back to, to, to <laughs> tell the story. The story. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's... Oh. I love this stuff. So a lot of the discussion seems, you know, at the moment we have to sort of theorize and imagine what might be going on here and it based on on the evidence that's sort of remotely gathered until uh, until hopefully we get a chance to explore these places remotely and maybe even someday firsthand. But uh, I was surprised how practical and sort of hands-on uh, you and the uh, and the Ocean Worlds Lab uh, were. You 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 get outside a lot. You've gone on a lot of expeditions to uh, I'm assuming to to fully understand the capabilities of life here as a as a baseline to to theorize what might be possible out there. <laughs> yeah, there, there's uh, in part it, it keeps me sane, um, you know, getting out and exploring our own planet. Uh, and that's uh, I, I grew up caving and climbing and uh, mountaineering, and uh, and so I've I've got a passion for getting out into these various beautiful environments on our home planet and. Yeah, one of the the beautiful aspects of developing instrumentation, developing robotic vehicles and working towards searching for life beyond Earth is that there are these environments on our home planet that can provide a, a, a guide uh, for um, what we might look for on these distant worlds and and how we might look for it, what kind of instrumentation might be useful, what kind of robotic vehicles could be viable. And so uh, I've had the, the wonderful fortune of many years ago, um, this is while I was still a grad student, I got to make nine dives to the bottom of the ocean in the Russian Mir submersibles. That was part of an incredible project with James Cameron. And then in the years since, I've done work in Antarctica, work up in the Arctic, 2019, before COVID hit, uh, I was down in Antarctica with our, our team from JPL and the Australian Antarctic Division testing out a rover that we've built that uh, is designed to investigate the ice water interface. This is a vehicle that we call the buoyant rover for under ice exploration. <laughs> I'm aware of that. I like it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as you appreciate, the ice water interface has not been studied in, in great detail, in part because it's a, a hard to access uh, environment, mm -hmm. which is a perfect recipe for getting uh, brilliant engineers to help uh, solve that challenge. So I was in Antarctica, and then I was also up at 82 degrees north in partnership with uh, an incredible uh, team of Norwegians uh, and colleagues from Woods Hole, and we were deploying the um, uh, nearest under ice vehicle to the hydrothermal vents along the Gackle Ridge that have been discovered. And so, yeah, it's it really is an incredible thrill to get out there and, and see our home planet and have the opportunity to, to test out uh, these various technologies uh, and get uh, important earth science done in the process because there is so much yet to understand and explore uh, on Earth. 
yeah, getting out into the field is a great inspiration sort of for, for equipment design and for your own hypotheses, for your own sort of musings about, well, if this is happening here, then what could be happening there? Yeah. And there's this, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this old adage in, in geology, which is that the best geologist is the one who's seen the most rocks. Uh, and <laughs> I'm, I'm not a geologist. My training is more physics and, and astronomy, a uh, smattering of, of geology and biology and, and uh, robotics degree thrown in for good measure. But um, I do think there are parallels when it comes to uh, biology and the search for life elsewhere, which is, you know, when, when it comes to identifying signs of life beyond Earth, having a deep bench of experience for what life looks like and what kind of fingerprints it leaves in these various extreme environments and potentially analog environments on Earth uh, is really useful. Absolutely. I'm continually amazed by the things we come across, you know, even just within specifically our, our deep sea areas. There's always something new. I'm always proven wrong in fantastic, incredible ways. And I, I, I think one of the best parts of being a scientist is being proven wrong is the best possible thing because that, that's that's when the fun starts that's when like oh no it wasn't that and you can you you should be stimulated like that but rather than being sort of a bit embarrassed because it's all it's all course correction over things like this but uh oh, i love to be wrong because then something's really interesting going on yeah, absolutely I'm really grateful of your time. You've been, <laughs> you're obviously an incredibly busy person. So I'm really grateful of you uh, coming on to have a chat with us. Uh, for anyone else like me who has been sort of stimulated by this discussion and uh, and will lie awake tonight <laughs> using uh, the sort of wider philosophical implications, your book, The uh, Alien Oceans, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space was out last year. I am definitely going to, to get a copy. Is there a a best sort of source for that? Is there a, a, a best reseller or just where wherever people can find it? Yeah, my plea as a as a fond peruser of bookstores is uh, if you're able to yes. get it at a, at a uh, local bookstore, go through them. Even in uh, COVID, I'm sure they, they'd be happy to place the order. But yes, of course, you can find it on Amazon. Um, just to finish on, one of our biggest and most famous rants and one that we keep bringing up is uh, is our loathing of the moon analogy and the the classic we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the deep sea and that flits to to mars every now and then depending on uh, when you hear the quote uh, and that was the origin of our turf war and our feud with uh, space but it sounds like uh, deep sea and space would actually make a fantastic partnership so uh, as, a, as a representative of, of space, uh, ambassador, essentially, do you have any thoughts on the on the moon analogy? <laughs> yeah, I, I listened to that that rant and uh, Alan did a tremendous job of uh, destroying the, the logic uh, that uh, on which that statement is, is founded, which was great. And it, what I would add, so, you know, and I've been on panels where I've had to, to deal with that, that analogy. Uh, Bob Ballard, who uh, is a wonderful friend and incredible explorer, <laughs> obviously, Bob loves to put that forth. Uh, but of course, you know, it's we wouldn't know the surface of Mars or the moon as well if they were covered in water. Water is the confounding uh, factor, and it is exactly what makes uh, the ocean the ocean. But, uh, you know, more to the point, often that um, statement gets brought up in the context of of resources. You know, we've got limited resources for ex exploration, uh, and therefore we should reallocate resources for exploring space to exploring our ocean. And you know, that is a, a subscription to the zero-sum game. You know, you can only do um, one thing. And certainly ocean exploration is a, a vast, uh, incredibly robust 
industry. That's part of why, at least in the United States, more money is not put directly towards ocean exploration. You've got the oil and gas industry and mining and, and things that potentially also problematic, but those industries uh, dump a ton of money into ocean exploration. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to resources, part of the reason that uh, space exploration has had the investment at the level of, say, NASA uh, that it has had for so long is because that was not a autocatalytic industry in and of itself. Ocean exploration rapidly took off into industry, whereas space exploration, it was not until, say, GPS and Earth orbiting satellites came online where that industry really kind of became self-sustaining. And of course, now you're seeing that grow in the uh, in the private sector with human exploration, human uh, tourism, etc. So it's an exciting time. And overall, you know, my main mantra uh, when it comes to this kind of issue is whether it's looking at space budgets or ocean exploration budgets, or for that matter, uh, military budgets. One mantra I think we can all agree upon is less destroying and more exploring, uh, be it in the ocean or out into space. And to be honest, based on our current discussion, I don't think we currently have to choose. I think there's a lot of overlapping technology and, uh, and synergy here. Absolutely. Um, are we going to officially end the feud between deep sea and space? And it doesn't impact at all that I'm recently finding out that there's loads of deep sea in space. <laughs> I'm desperate to get at it. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much for sacrificing some time. I know one, you're very busy anyway, but it's an exciting time for you guys at the moment with, with Rover Ops. So thank you so much for cleaving out a little bit of your schedule to have a chat with us today. My pleasure. And thanks for the invitation. Right. So we know what's technically possible. We know where there might be life out in space uh, and most importantly, deep sea life, of course. But how are we then going to go about exploring that and actually get a chance to confirm this and go searching for deep sea life? Even though it's pretty far in the future, um, it'll be a long time before we manage to get equipment to these places. But people are already trying to figure out how we're going to do that. As a nice little aside, that means that we get some nice deep sea technology to test here while we're, uh, while we're figuring that out. All right. So who are you going to talk to about that then, Tom? Get on the phone. Get on the phone. <laughs> One day we might even have a... Well, imagine that. Imagine we were like doing a podcast here and then we had the guest in this silent room with us. That'd be odd. It's not going to happen, though, is it? I mean, I've got to be honest, I'm finding this a bit odd, actually. This is... I think it's quite creepy. Do you want to hear how silent it is again? Go on, let's treat them to some high-quality silence. Wait. All right. Now. That is really quiet, isn't it? Although, so. um, that, there's a little hum. It might just be your anxiety, but I, I think, can hear yeah, it. Yeah, I think I resonate with uh, yeah. with worry for most of the time. Humming worry and anxiety coming from you. <laughs> just, just anyway, sorry, we're going, off, we're, we're going off piece again. Uh, aye, so do you know someone who, who, who knows about deep sea vehicles that were ultimately a test bed for space travel? I do, and it is someone we've been to sea with. Ooh, who's that? Casey Machado. Oh. She is... Oh, Tech guru. Any... Yes, yes. Deep aye. sea vehicle extraordinaire. Deep sea vehicle whiz. Yeah. Um, and we sailed with her back in 2014, a couple of times, actually. A couple of times. Uh, on the Thompson and the Falco. Yeah, yeah. So two of our big jobs as part of the Hades expedition. Yeah. Um, oh, well, get on the phone then. Oh, we'll do. We'll do. It's a good right. chance to catch up. Right. We'll shut up then. Get on the phone. All right. 
I'm joined by Casey Machado, research engineer at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, currently working with the Hadex project, exploring the Hadel environment, so those areas greater than six kilometers depth or almost about four miles. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We sailed together a few times sort of back in the day, back in 2014. We got to go to the the Mariana and the Comatic Trenches as part of the um, Hades program, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Back in the day, Landers and Nereus, right? Yes, we had the very bad day. <laughs> the loss of uh, Nereus, which was a, a spectacular sort of AUV, ROV hybrid platform. And I wanted to sort of leap off from that. I'm sorry to sort of start on a negative, but at least from, from my understanding, that's what kind of changed the philosophy from the research group of a single, very capable, very high value asset to do this, this high risk, super deep work. We were joking earlier on most of our proposals, we kind of like lead in with the, the little tagline, like after the loss of Nereus, blah, 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 blah. We're like, we need to find a more positive way to start all of these. <laughs> it always starts with the loss of Nereus, but it is a, a very good point. And that's how we got to um, sort of the, the Orpheus concept, which is cheap and cheerful, very easy to use, low sort of infrastructure footprint type vehicle from Nereus, which was, like you said, very complex. But after the loss of Nereus in 2014, there was this sort of big gap where we didn't really have the same extent of capabilities for doing Hadal exploration because Nereus just could do so much while you were down there and you had the sort of live connection to the surface. Uh, so you had ability to, you know, have human interaction and all of that. And to have that just like in one one implosion in half a millisecond, have all of that go away. And then kind of, I mean, it's taken years and years now, and we're still not back at that point. So we kind of went away from that possibility of just having everything kind of taken off the table all at once to uh, what we're sort of calling a more distributed architecture, distributed systems. So lots of little things that do tasks rather than one big thing. So if you lose any one thing in that, it's not sort of the whole house of cards falling down. Stripping down to to sort of multiple lower cost vehicles, there's a sort of refining in order to do that, isn't it? it it's everything is super reliable. And if it's not entirely necessary, then it's not on there. They're mission focused vehicles. Yeah, we tried to keep the design as lean as possible. Our motto is like, do we really need this? Anytime somebody was like, oh, we need this sensor, somebody else would say, but do we really need that sensor? Like, can we get along with uh, something else? What we sort of distilled down to was, as you said, sort of this core of, you know, reliable stuff that you absolutely need, which then makes a great building block later on to add the more complicated mission specific payloads and all of that. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I'm sort of known for like hitting things with hammers and turning wrenches and that kind of stuff. My requirement for all of the software end of it was I have to be able to program a mission for this. I'm, I'm not formally trained in software in any way. We have a very sort of like near English text-based way to communicate. We've tried to set it up so that any scientist or engineer or whatever operator can do it. And since it's small, it lets you get on any any size ship that you would want. So you could operate on like 20, 30 foot fishing vessel, just the same as you could on a 100 meter long research vessel. One of the articles I was reading described it as, as roughly the size of a mechanical bull. Which kind of sets the dimensions quite nicely as well. Yeah, I guess I've never heard it quite uh, 
defined as that, but I do have some interesting pictures of the team at various points riding it like a mechanical bull. <laughs> so um, I think that's a pretty apt so it was description. There. It's always yeah. there. It's kind of the, the little lifting bill makes a really nice like handle. Yeah. No, it's it's cute. <laughs> and, and maybe sort of it represents how it feels emotionally that this is something you've been I, I hanging guess, on to while yeah. it bucks and kicks. Yeah. And <laughs> that's also probably pretty accurate. I, I'm realizing this is an audio medium, so we should probably actually describe the vehicle you're currently working on describe Orpheus and what it's capable of. So the AUV Orpheus is uh, a small scale AUV, weighs about 550 pounds fully loaded with science payload and roughly takes up a footprint of about five feet by five feet. But most of that is sort of like has these kind of triangular legs that come down out to the side. So it's sort of a main fuselage with two landing gear coming off of it, sort of like a helicopter without the blades type of thing. And it's designed to operate very near the seafloor bottom or land on the bottom, which is something that's uncommon for AVs. Uh, usually you want to, you know, not not be interacting with the bottom as much as possible. But uh, in this instance, we designed it to, you know, be quite happy to sit on the bottom. Uh, it has four thrusters on it. There's two horizontal thrusters and two verticals. And that's sort of it in terms of the propulsion. And then I guess the, the brains of the operation where almost all of the stuff happens, there's a 17-inch glass sphere out in the, the sort of nose of the vehicle itself, which has a camera in it that looks out of the glass, sort of down at the seafloor. And then that's also where the batteries and the computer and for all the control electronics. The science payload, it's it's sort of deliberately modular, isn't it? So that that camera housing and that sort of brain housing that manages everything that Orpheus needs to, to move around. And then you've got this, it, it looks like a sort of drop bay underneath where you can put a variety of science platforms sort of depending on the mission. Right. And we sort of deliberately kind of left that space flexible and blank. And it's kind of like the, the underbelly of the fuselage there facing down the seafloor. So we've had, uh, we've put a 4K camera in there in a housing that's been our nominal payload. We have something on the order of 30 to 40 pounds wet weight of payload. So that can be anything a scientist dreams of, really. I like to think, think of scientists as kind of our customers in a way in that they have a need and we provide the platform. It's great that it can actually land and that the skids are adjustable, aren't they? So you, you can guarantee basically where the sediment's going to be. And then unlike a lot of AUVs, that science payload can interact with the seabed and you can take sediment and, and seabed samples, not just in water samples. When you get down to like Hadal seafloors, I mean, as I'm sure you know, like if you if you impact in landing, you're waiting for, you know, tens of minutes for the dust to clear because there's not all that much yeah. current down there. We wanted to make sure that we kind of like gingerly land in a controlled manner. <laughs> and to allow the system to navigate and understand its surroundings, you formed an interesting partnership. Very much indeed. The whole project has been a wonderful collaboration with uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, which is also part of Caltech. And that's been something that from the beginning, we identified this parallel between hadal environments and environments that are extraterrestrial, but very similar. So ocean worlds, Earth becomes this great analogy for researching the potential of exploring extraterrestrial oceans. So we ended up partnering with NASA JPL in this and... One of the key enabling bits of technology that have led us 
follow that, keep it simple, do we really need this philosophy, has been the development of this visual navigation tool that we use, which is, it falls under a larger umbrella uh, of terrain relative navigation, which you may have heard in the, the, the helicopter that's flying around on Mars that launched off of the Mars rover. And so that helicopter is very much sort of the same kind of mission profile that Orpheus has, and as such uses the same kind of navigation strategy. It's not exactly the same stuff, you know, slightly different environment. To get super technical into it, we use something that's called visual and inertial odometry. And that's just sort of a technical way to say that we use cameras and then we have a gyro inertial measurement unit there that basically just measures the accelerations of the vehicle. When you put those two together, you can basically figure out where you're going just by looking at images through a camera. So if you see like, hey, this one rock on the seafloor is here in this image, but we've moved forward. So in the image, the rock has moved X amount. You can now say, I have moved that far over the seafloor. And if you have a camera that's calibrated and then the computer behind there processing everything, it's a way to get quantitative navigation in a very small package because all you really need is a low res uh, we use a black and white, almost like webcam-ish type thing. And as long as you're in sight of the seafloor, that's all you need to do your navigation. And it replaces much heavier acoustic solutions for this, like the Doppler velocity loggers, that sort of thing that you see on much larger ROVs. They're heavy and expensive packages. So this sounds really elegant. And the visual-based stuff on its own, that used to be quite processor heavy, you know, because you're just using the images and you're just trying to match one image relative to the other. But that combination with, with the gyro and the inertial stuff, that's really elegant. That's really smart. It's really biological, actually. It's, it's very close to how the animals orientate themselves. There's some definite nuance and sort of struggle with it. And as far as I know, people have done this in the past, but it's never really been implemented in an operationally sustainable way. It's been exciting to see that go. And this Past May, we were out doing a field expedition with NOAA and this Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute funded all of that. And it was basically our proof of concept cruise for this terrain relative navigation process. We got some great imagery of the seafloor. And part of the question that we had in our minds does sort of a, a barren seafloor present enough visually distinct targets for this technology to actually be able to work, right? We found it was having absolutely no problem latching on to specific little points on the seafloor. And it also was not getting false points created by, you know, like the marine debris that was uh, sort of blowing by the marine snow backscatter type stuff. Oh, this sounds really exciting. So it, it's still very much in a developing stage, which is when tech is at its most most exciting, really, because the whole horizon is open to you. Yeah. To, to come back to the, the NASA stuff a little bit, the environments that they're looking for, how that's impacting your sort of design, we're going to have to get the stuff there. And so the smaller and more robust and simpler it is, the better. The problem we're trying to solve is assuming that they solve the problem that they can get something through that ice layer. There's a lot of a lot of parallels and things that have struck me in space as I've learned more about it over these past few years that are like, oh, this is a lot more similar to what we're doing here on Earth than I would have imagined. You would have think like, oh, space, it's a completely yeah. different thing. Environmentally, I find that really cool. And then from an engineering standpoint, there's a lot of similarities in the design challenges for going to space. But then there are a few like key differences. And for them, they're they're always governed by what they call the rocket equation, right? The heavier something 
something is, the more rocket fuel you need to basically shoot it off of Earth and get it into space. And in the ocean, we don't care as much what something weighs in air. Hui's Jason ROV weighs, you know, upwards of 10,000 pounds, right? So it's something you wouldn't even imagine shooting up as a science payload into space. But it's... (laughs) it weighs zero pounds because it's neutral on the seafloor, right? Because we have buoyancy there. So that sort of push and drive for miniaturization was something that uh, the folks at JPL really, you know, from the very beginning were like, hey, like this can't be a 10,000 pound thing if it's ever going to go to space. And even Orpheus as it is now is, you know, still much too big to go into space and do these sort of missions. But I always like to tell people it's like, it's step one or two of a thousand step journey to when there's a vehicle 50 or 100 years from now, which is a little humbling to think about, but that's sort of <laughs> like, you got to start somewhere, right? Another fundamental difference about space and ocean exploration is that when we put something in the ocean, right, if it doesn't work, you know, you lose a dive and it comes back up and then you're like, okay, I'm, I got to, you know, open the thing up and fix it. And then it'll, it'll be fine for the next dive and we throw it back in. So we tend to, at least in my experience, deprioritize these heavy bouts of reliability testing before we go out in the field <laughs> and do things. And, and you just rely on like the technical capabilities of the people out to sea to fix things as they break. And, you know, that works arguably quite well in oceanography. But in space exploration, once it leaves the planet, you're never getting it back. Maybe that'll change in the future, but things that would go out to Europa, thats a, it's a one-way trip. I feel like maybe we could learn a lot from NASA on the deep sea end of things. Me and Alan have, have talked about this a few times on, on the podcast, but there's there's massive parallels. And the deeper you go, sort of the more it starts to align with the, the issues that NASA are up against. High risk, high reward, really sort of cutting edge stuff in extreme environments. But they seem to come across so positive and optimistic They've just got amazing PR and, and it feels like the whole of humanity is sort of behind them in these things. And I, I think us in deep sea, we can be a little bit pessimistic. I'm wondering if you, you're finding any sort of elements of that working with them and if there's anything we can learn from NASA and the way they do things and just being a bit more positive about what we do and, and how we're doing it. I think that there is definitely a lot to learn. I think actually both ways. And I do I do agree with sort of like the overall portrayed attitude of, I guess, oceanography to space exploration. I I wouldn't begin to speculate why, like where that comes from, aside from maybe just we're all salty old sailors who are you know, grumbling <laughs> and mode. such. Yeah, um, <laughs> there is that kind of like you know forward projecting optimism and hopefulness in that. And the thing that kind of got me, and this is like one of those little like more you know emotional, personal based things, is I went out to JPL several times during this collaboration working there, and like they have like JPL's motto is "Dare Mighty Things." Um, (laughs) but that that's like like a really cool motto like that's just like you know what do something that somebody else doesn't think is going to be possible and i think there's a lot of there's a lot more hesitation to do that and to try like really crazy inventive things in the ocean maybe as a as a person who's built a career about trying crazy crazy (laughs) things in the ocean it's exactly why i wanted to talk to you (laughs) in in terms of the the other thing you were saying the learning from each other i think that There is a freedom and flexibility to the way we approach oceanography and engineering in the ocean that I think NASA and JPL, I think they find that really appealing. All of their procedure and rigor and all of that is restrictive in some ways. And the way that we approach 
remote operations in our field is much more freeform and <laughs> much more kind of almost by the seat of our pants. And I think that lets us get away with certain things, but it also gives us the opportunity to learn and iterate faster in certain areas, especially on things like using humans to remotely control something that you can't have access to. And so there's future uh, missions that are heading up to the moon, for example, that are going to have robotics up on the moon that are controlled by the surface of Earth. One of the neat things that I've seen out of this collaboration that's formed through Orpheus is there's now talk between NASA engineers and engineers at Woods Hole Oceanographic about, well, how do, how do we each approach these remote operations and what can we learn from each other? Like, hey, things that work on controlling a Mars rover, could those be applied to operating a remotely operated vehicle or, you know, vice versa. That's really inspiring. I like that. This is such an exciting area to be working in. Are, are you enjoying this? Is this Has this been just great fun? I think I've been reinvigorated by the kind of broadening of scope of the impact of the work with, you know, connecting it into space. I won't lie, the the whole losing Nereus, which we alluded to earlier, that that was, you know, it was, it was a pretty big punch in the gut for me. That had been my life's work up until that point in my core professional career. And to have all that sort of like in the blink of an eye go away, and then just be like left there literally with the pieces in my hand. There was a little bit of like, okay, well, where do you go from here? And how do you move forward from that without it feeling like, oh, I'm just recreating the thing I just lost. And this partnership and expanding of scope and horizons, I think for me was the thing that got me out of that mindset of like, oh, we're just gonna, we just have to like, you know, crawl to get back to where we were. And we, you know, went in a completely different direction, which is really neat. And I think that's sort of the part of this, like you should never be afraid to fail spectacularly, but you need to be able to learn from it, right? Otherwise, otherwise the failure doesn't quite have the same uh, meaning and legacy. Yeah, you're, you're doubling down on it. Otherwise, you've got to do the Phoenix thing and you've got to, to be reborn through that. And it's, it's totally changed this direction, which is the way things are going. It's looking like it's more sustainable. It's more useful for deep sea science. And then it has this potentially incredible future application. A bad day has, has fanned out into this incredible opportunity that I think the whole community is going to benefit from. For sure. I'd be remiss in this also um, in not mentioning that the development of Orpheus has very much at Woods Hole been this kind of joint science and engineering development. So I've been working with deep sea biologist Tim Shank at Woods Hole as a partner in uh, shepherding this Hadex and Orpheus stuff forward. And in that partnership, we've been able to really bound it in a way like, how is this going to create access? How is this going to really actually be useful for the community of people that are going to need it, are going to need to put instruments on this? And I think once we've sort of gone through the teething pains that come with every new vehicle and getting things up to, you know, operational reliability levels and all of that, I think it's going to really be transformative to use a to use a buzzword that I like to put in proposals. But I, I really do think it's going to be transformative in how it grants access to anywhere in the ocean. Like, that's really cool to say, hey, this little thing that costs under $200,000, you can go anywhere in the ocean and all you need is like a fishing boat. You could buy one of these and fly out to Guam and rent a fishing boat. You could be at the deepest point in the world contributing to science. So I think that's really important. And I think one of the things that is going to get people to care more about the ocean is going to be making the exploration of it more accessible to more people. 
yeah, stopping it feeling remote. And, and, and that comes back around to the, to the NASA thing. It brings space to the general public and makes them feel a part of it and makes them feel a connection to it. And if they can do that with things that are light years away, we should be able to get them the personal connection to the deep sea. It's the most borderless majority of our planet and everyone owns it and everyone should have a stake in it and, and a personal attachment to it. You should feel as fondly towards the deep sea as you do your favorite holiday beach. It's, it's for us. It's for all of us. For sure. Alan liked to ask the question, what is the best party you've ever been to? Best party? A lot of the really good parties I've been on have been attached to the end of cruise party. You take any any group of people and you you work them to the bone for a month and then you, you know, bring them back on shore and have them celebrate. And so this party was after we took Nereus to the Mariana Trench and we successfully did a progression of deeper dives that ended with two or three dives to Challenger Deep. Very exciting stuff. Flash forward past all that, you know irrelevant science and engineering. And we get back, uh, we're in Guam, we were at the Navy base there. The team was, it was like 2025 20, engineers, and then a couple of science people, but it was basically the, the entire engineering team who'd worked on this vehicle. And we had just sort of done what we had set out to do. This was like to us sort of like the moon landing of doing it. So everyone was excited. And so we went out to a bar that was on base and food and drinks and all of that. And there was a, a man there who was having a party sort of in the other half of this kind of open air bar thing. And he had just made officer gotten some sort of promotion. At first, the two parties were like somewhat separate um, and maybe even a little like begrudged against each other because they had they had some food set out that we didn't necessarily know was not for us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was like a little bit of bad blood at first, but then we got to talking and made some quick friends there and we kind of told them what they were doing and they told us why they were partying. And so it just turned into this big merge together celebration. And at some point in the night, a karaoke machine appeared. Uh, they sort of wheeled <laughs> out on one of those carts, but we didn't do karaoke. The The guy who had just been promoted, he just took the microphone of it and then he just started singing like sea shanties. Um, oh, yes. And so of your time. He, he, yeah, it's very topical <laughs> nowadays. But and so he would sort of sing them and a lot of them have like sort of like call and response things. So if you don't know what the sea shanty is, then you can, uh, you know, listen for the first like verse and you're like, oh, okay, I'm in. in. <laughs> and I, I mean, we must have spent couple of hours just singing sea shanties and everyone together just drinking and having a good time. It was just sort of such a nice kind of like cap on the whole experience that was very stressful and such. But uh, it was just sort of a, a, a fun, free thing to just be belting out sea shanties at the top of your lungs all late into the night. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's cathartic because it's it's such high pressure at sea, especially if you're at a point where success rides on you or it's something very personal. A couple of weeks of that is emotionally exhausting. And yeah, you just need to go a little bit crazy at the end of it. And that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of other ones, some of which I can't uh, entirely share on uh, public forums, but I have been, I have been to a lot of uh, great post-cruise parties. I think we ended up all dancing to kiss in Guam the one time we were there as well. 
Yeah, actually, the yeah the time that we sailed together that was a that was a pretty fun after cruise celebration as well. I and it was Christmas, time. wasn't it? So there was like oh, weird. Yes. It was really hot. It was dark, and there was this just the odd Santa Claus watching us. Yeah, I, yeah, because I, I remember we got we got to the hotel, and it was like the entire lobby was like this magical winter wonderland, and outside it's like <laughs> you know ninety degrees Fahrenheit and one hundred percent humidity. Oh, thank you so much. That was uh, that was really useful. Yeah, you're welcome sounds like we're going to get some really cool deep sea tech as a result of this. Oh, you're not. Well, not per uh, us as a community. I don't know. May maybe maybe she'll let me put some science gear on it. <laughs> maybe she'll just give you an entire vehicle. I, I think that's probably a push, but it's good to see affordable, reliable uh, deep sea tech being developed. This episode is running a little bit long, but I think this is some interesting stuff and I would like to sort of keep it all together. So rather than fatiguing your ears, and having you maybe never make it to the end of the episode, I'm going to split these ones into a two-parter, but don't worry, I won't make you wait a whole month. Part two is going to come out next week. It's just to give you a little time to listen to this one and recover before I bombard you with a three-hour long podcast. But you can listen to them back to back, depending on how tight your energy budget is. Yes, it's all about your energy budget. Yeah, helpful. Call back. Theme, and... theme tune. <laughs> Roll credits. Roll credits. <laughs> Let's go to the pub. So, yeah, so our secret track for today, uh, we've no idea what it's going to be, but we shall record it later this afternoon on the rainy, miserable streets of Newcastle-upon-Tyne for the last time. Anyway, theme tune. <laughs> The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company Armatus Oceanic. If you would like to explore the deep sea yourself, we can help you out with that with technology and know-how. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience, we can help with that as well. Fact-checking, storytelling, podcasting, interviews, however. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. So here we are. Outside Trillion's Rock Bar yes. in Newcastle. Yes. It's rowdy with punks and rockers. We've had a few pints. <laughs> more, more than a few. few. More than a few. We've... So, okay, so it's been a pleasure. We've been working together for a decade. It's yep. longer than that, actually, yeah. I think. Probably, yeah. For more than 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. But we will embrace the internets. We will continue to podcast. The podcast will keep us together. Tom. Yes. Now's the time to leave me. <laughs> I'm not leaving, it's you. <laughs> Alan, Alan, as you leave, yeah. tell me you abyss me already. I don't abyss you at all. <laughs> oh, actually. Okay, well, while I'm on it, yeah, go. Before I go, if I do get stung by a wallaby, yeah. or a wombat, while surfing away from a <laughs> bushfire, avenge me, avenge me. Avenge you. Avenge. Wait, wait, of all those things, which one do I avenge? The wallaby, the bushfire? Australia. Just all of Australia. All of Australia. Okay. Just a <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I don't know if we can use any of that.